is Our American Stories. And our next story, well, it's about a 17-year-old kid named Bob Heft who designed the 50-star American flag we all fly proudly to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. After learning about Betsy Ross, you probably didn't give much thought to how the subsequent U.S. flags were designed. It might seem like a no-brainer flag makers just added a new star for every new state, right? Well, it turns out not that simple. Each new flag has a very careful design, and the arrangement of the stars must be precise and symmetrical. And for the flag we know today, that arrangement was designed by a junior in high school from Ohio. It was 1958, and America only contained 48 United States. The flag at the time featured six rows of eight stars. Bob Heff's history teacher assigned a class project where each student had to bring in something they made. Bob Heft loved flags, and he loved politics. So, having been inspired by the Betsy Ross story the class just studied, and seeing the news that Alaska was poised to become our nation's 49th state, with Hawaii soon behind, Heft decided to make a 50-star flag. So, he made some adjustments to his parents' 48-star flag, brought it in, and triumphantly placed it on his teacher's desk. Here's Bob. In American history class, we had to do an outside-of-class project. We could make or do whatever we wanted. Like a science fair or something like that, you bring the project in. The Betsy Ross story uh, intrigued me. And my mom and dad, uh, they had a a 48-star flag they received as a wedding present, which, of course, meant a lot to them. Well, I took a scissors and cut it up. Heft's mother walked in from the kitchen and found him cutting up their family flag and promptly began scolding him. She told his father when he got home, and Heft received another tongue lashing. I had always been in the Boy Scouts, and I had always been patriotic, Heft told the Lancaster Eagle Gazette in 2007. They wanted to know why I would turn on the flag. I had never sewn in my life. I watched my mom sew, but I'd never sewn. And since making the flag of her country, I've never sewn again. So anyhow, we get to class. I had my flag on the teacher's desk. And the teacher said, what's this thing on my desk? So I got up and I approached the desk, and I'm shaking like a leaf. And he said, why you got too many stars? You don't even know how many states we have. And uh, he gave me the grade of a B minus. Now, that, a B-minus isn't that bad of a grade. However, uh, a friend of mine, Jim, he picked up five leaves off the ground. He's taping these leaves down to the notebook and the labeling, elm, hickory, maple. And the teacher gave him the grade of an A. I was really, I was, I was upset. The teacher said, if you don't like the grade, get it accepted in Washington, then come back and see me. I might consider changing the grade. Bob arrived home that day with his class project. And I had it in a plastic bag, and I threw it on the sofa, and my mother came in, she said, supper's ready. I said, I'm not hungry. She said, what's wrong? I said, and I never talked about a teacher. I said, this stupid teacher gave me a B minus on the flag. And then she really hacked me. I said, that's more I'd have given you, because she was really dead set against this. Two years later. I'd written 21 letters to the White House, made 18 phone calls. Now, you can imagine when my mom got the phone bell. What's this number? I said, well, 
Mom, that's the White House. So anyhow, I uh, got this call, and it said, now, the President of the United States is calling you later on today. Well, at that time, Eisenhower was president, and he comes on the phone, and he says, is this Robert G. Heft? And I said, yes, sir, but you can just call me Bob. And he says, I want to know the possibility of you coming to Washington, D.C. on July 4th for the official adoption uh, of the uh, new flag. Bob received this call from President Eisenhower at his new place of employment. Here's what happened next. Well, I've been at this company 11 days. I said, well, wait a minute. My boss is standing here. I reached down, pushed the red button on the phone, put the President of the United States on hold. What are you doing? I said, I've got to talk to you. He said, you just put the President of the United States on hold. I said, he wants me to come to Washington. He said, well, tell him you'll be there. I said, look, I don't have any sick leave. I don't have any vacation. Because you know your first job out of high school, you don't want to mess up and just lose it. And he said, get him back on the phone. We'll work out the details. We'll charge it off to executive leave or something. But get him back. He was really upset. And we did a lot of military contracts. I think they probably thought, here's this kid that's been working there for 11 days is going to mess up future contracts, uh, you know, uh, putting the president on hold. So I picked up the phone, put the white button, put the phone up and said, uh, Dwight, are you still there? Because, you know, I didn't know how you properly address it. And, and they're, they're cracking up. Oh, my Lord, here's Bob talking to Buddy Dwight and stuff. Years following his talk with Dwight, Bob preserved this historic moment and paid a visit to his old teacher. And so uh, I have the grade book. It's encased in plastic. It's kept in a bank. My teacher, and he said, I guess if it's good enough for Washington, it's good enough for me. I hereby change the grade to an A. Decades after, Heft inspired people young and old with his follow your dream story. He became a high school teacher, college professor, and a seven-term mayor of Napoleon, Ohio. He spoke extensively, as many as 200 engagements a year, and visited the White House 14 times under nine presidents. Heff died on December 12, 2009 at the age of 68, but his legacy survives every time we fly his 50-star creation. And if the U.S. ever adds a 51st state, Heff's got that flag covered too. Back in 1958, he designed a 51-star version that uses six rows of stars, alternating between rows of nine and eight. This would make Heft the only person to design two United States flags. Bob said in 2007, an idea doesn't do any good if you don't pursue it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
And we're back with Our American Stories, and now we bring you the story of the unlikely relationship between two of New York City's finest, a fighter fighter named Nils Jorgensen and the late billionaire David Koch, a leader of Koch Industries, which employs 67,000 Americans. Nils was off duty on 9-11. When the first plane struck the World Trade Center, he complied with a total recall order for all off-duty firemen to report to their firehouses. And that's where Nils picks up the story. I started driving to my firehouse, and then all of a sudden on the radio I hear, second plane is struck. I could somewhat see on my drive the smoke and whatnot, and I'm flying over the Verrazano Bridge, and my wife calls me frantically, where are you, where are you? And I said, I'm on the bridge, I'm going in. And she says, no, you're not. Listen to what your dad, my dad would always tell me, if there's ever a recall, you follow it, or you could end up dead, and no one is looking for you. And for some unknown reason, there was no traffic. It was eerie. And I'm flying, and I'm going, but wait a minute, I don't have my fire gear. What the hell am I going to do? She hung up the phone screaming at me, and my wife doesn't curse. She said, those effing buildings are going to go down, and you'll effing die. Go to your command where you're supposed to. And I heard my father in my ear, and he's just, my father doesn't say a lot, but when he says something, it's profound. And I remember him always saying, kid, never be a freelancer. You follow your orders, you follow your training. Something real bad goes down. And this was after the 93 bombing, because I was at that. And we used to always talk and say, it's gonna happen again. And he said, you follow your orders, go to your firehouse, get your gear, and you get your further pending orders. I veered off the highway, went down into Brooklyn where I worked. I checked in, I was the first one. I called into command, and they said, you get 12 guys, grab a city bus and get over there. And guys came streaming in, and we're watching the TV, and just as we run out the street to get the city bus to take us, we see the tower go down, the first one. And uh, I believe the second tower hit was the first one to collapse. And I, I, I dropped to my knees and I started crying and praying. And the guys looked at me, I said, guys, now our, our truck from our house was gone. It was at the scene. So we were in the empty house and, you know, convening and deploying from there. And I said, guys, 114 is dead. That's our truck. And they're like looking at me, like, what are you talking about? I said, when I came in the door, I heard our boss, Dennis, on the radio, 114 truck with 1084 is our code of on scene. We're at Albany and West, where do you need us? And the nickname of our truck is Tally Ho. And he said, Tally Ho, respond into the command post, West and Albany, for further orders. That was the last I heard from my lieutenant. His rookie son, or as we call a probie, his probie son was assigned that day in another ladder company and he was killed. And that lieutenant ended up saving our crew because as they were going into the building, he saw what he thought to be partial collapsing. And he told the guys, turn around, this building's coming down behind us. And as they turned around and ran, they dove under a truck, the building came down, the guys 40 feet, 50 feet behind them are under it and they're dead and they're in the pile. And my lieutenant, who unfortunately did lose his son, saved our crew. Unbeknownst to us as that was going on, we got into the bus and as we were coming over the Brooklyn Bridge to help and we got into the city and started running toward it, the second building just came down. 
and I wasn't there in the building when it collapsed and I would never claim to be but I made my best effort to get there and the crew of us that got there were horrified because we knew that our on-shift platoon, our guys that we loved and worked with, were probably underneath that pile. And by the grace of God, that lieutenant saved that shift of five guys plus himself. But unfortunately, the other ladder company, 105, which I had actually, was my first command in the city where my lieutenant's son was working. His son was killed. And the strange part about it was the senior man, the older firefighter working that day on that shift with his son was working with me on the day of 1993's bombing, and he was my senior man looking over. <sighs> so, sorry. <sighs> he, was, he was looking over my shoulder. And later on, <sighs> hours later after the evening of the first bombing in 93, he looked around and he said, you know what, kid? He goes, these mutts didn't do it right. They blew it up in the middle. But if they did it in the corner by a column, they would have beat us today and the building would have dropped. And he said to me that the next time they come back, they'll do it right. Don't, don't kid yourself for a second. And that man, Hank Miller, he died. He died that day, he almost prophesied it. And then just, and then we just, we, we regrouped and redeployed onto the main pile because there was, there was confirmed a couple people that were still alive and we were working on shuttling gear in and out and trying to just move debris and whatnot. And as with an older guy and we branched off maybe a hundred yards to another section and we were just down in a hole underneath a bunch of steel and all you could hear was sand dropping every once in a while like as if it was rolling down a hill and it was eerily quiet, and then you would just hear some hissing, and that was the gas lines that were ruptured. And he just said, kid, what do you hear? And I said, oh, I hear the hissing, and I, I hear the debris. The, the, it was just everything was pulverized into gray sand. And he said, no, I know that, but what else do you hear? And I stopped for a second, and I said, I don't hear anything. He said, that's right. He says, because everyone's dead. We're wasting our time. He goes, no one's coming out of this, kid. They're all gone. He goes, look at the concrete, look at the steel, what happened to it. You think bodies are gonna survive through that? And he was right, he was right. Everybody was pulverized and everybody was just crushed and it was, it was just horrible. And we stayed till about four o'clock that following morning. And we couldn't breathe, we couldn't, we just, we, we were caked and filled with dust in our throats and our eyes couldn't see at points in time. And the lieutenant just decided, he says, guys, we need to regroup. Gotta to try to get back to our firehouse, clean up, get some supplies, and get right back here in the morning. So we hopped on a city bus, and uh, we walked down to the battery tunnel, and they told us there'd be buses, hopefully, to get us back over to Brooklyn. And we returned to Brooklyn, and the guy couldn't, for some reason, I can't remember why, he couldn't go up the main street where we were on, so he dropped us off. So we went, we walked up the hill, and we were all having a hard time breathing, and it felt like we swallowed a box full of razor blades. And I, I was really having trouble walking up the hill, and I, I was, it was, 
the worst sore throat you've ever had, but then down from your roof of your mouth to the insides of your stomach. And I remember one of the older guys with us, he said, you know what, guys, we're all dead. And I said, no, no, Dan, we made it. He goes, no, you don't understand. He goes, this crap we breathed in, we're all dead men. And out of the 20 guys that were there that day from our crew, I think, I think eight of us have cancer. And some, a few of the guys, I've been blessed with only one, but a few of the guys have had three different cancers. And by the grace of God, those particular guys are alive. One of my other dear friends came down with three different cancers, and he's been dead now for almost two years. And that guy was right. He, he wasn't right about all of us, but there's a lot of us that, that died after the fact from those hours, the first day, second day, 50th day, 80th day of being down there. And we went back to the firehouse, and we cleaned off, and we just got the caked dust out of our tried out of our throats, out of our eyes. We, 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 we got some fresh clothes, and but the dirty, toxic clothes that we were wearing, we didn't throw them out. We threw them in the wash. We threw them in the firehouse laundry. We threw them in our locker where they sat for a couple of weeks until we got a chance to do laundry. And then, you know, you'd have your gear in the subsequent days, and your fire gear was filthy and caked with this toxic crap, and it's in the back of your car. And then if you're lucky enough to get a day off or half a day off, you try to clean the car out, and then you throw your baby seat in the back, not knowing that a couple of years later they're going to say, oh, this stuff was really, really bad and toxic, and now you're going, oh, my God, my kids breathe this crap too. And you've been listening to 9-11 firefighter Nils Jorgensen. More of Nils' remarkable story here on Our American Stories. Hey all, this is Joey Cortez, a producer of Our American Stories. As always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the show. It's you, our listeners, that make this show possible. From the donations to the stories, without you, we wouldn't be here today. And we would love your continued support. If you feel so inclined, give us a tax-deductible donation at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And while you're there, submit your story too. With your help, we can bring you the very best stories out there. More of Our American Stories after the break. And we continue with Our American Stories and firefighter Nils Jorgensen's story. Nils's colleague predicted that they would get sick from the work that they did on 9-11 and in the aftermath. And tragically, he was right. Long story short, they found it out. They diagnosed the, the leukemia. The way they explained it to me was it's different than an organ cancer. It's not like a uh, stage 1, 2, 3, or 4 of, you know, colon or liver Leukemia is like a car driving on a road, as they explained. You get to a cliff, the wheels go off, you're dead. I said, all right, Doc, well, where am I? He goes, well, your front, your front wheels are off the cliff. You probably had about another three or four days to live. We're going to try to intervene with the spleen, get all the swelling down. They drilled into my hip. They found out exactly what cancer it was, and it's the rarest leukemia you can have. There's 49 different ones. 
There's only 500 cases in all of North America a year. And I was the seventh 9-11 rescuer in six months to come down with it. And a couple of the guys had already died. And my cancer doctor said to me, he goes, it's statistically impossible that that many of you have this rare of a leukemia. By the grace of God, I was given very, very high doses of chemotherapy. It's, I believe, I'm giving it in a layman's perspective, but it was, the drug was called cladribine. When they give you seven days of nonstop chemotherapy in these massive bags, IV bags, and it's, from what I was told by my doctor, it's almost like the equivalent of two years of chemo jammed into a week. Um, burns out your bone marrow entirely in the hopes that your own seedling marrow will regenerate. And my angel on earth, and I haven't got a chance to recapture with him, and I regret this, and shame on me for not. I had a male nurse named Mike Nunez, and Mike Nunez was my angel on earth. And there was many other nurses, but Mike was my main guy. And he explained to me, he said, listen, he goes, I'm going to come in. I have to wear a hazmat suit. We're going to start you up on this. I go, whoa, Mike, a hazmat suit? He goes, listen, he goes, you'll kind of get this because you're a fireman. He goes, this stuff exposed to air is so caustic that it'll burn through plastic. He said, but in your vein and in your body, it's going to do its job. It'll burn. You're going to feel like you're burning your entire body. But that means the drug is working. So I said, well, Mike, I'm forget it. I don't want it. He goes, then you're going to die. And I got my three young kids at the time. I mean, this is eight years ago. So I got 14, 11, and nine. And I'm like, whoa, I got to do this, man. And it was like I was flashing back to my life. My dad was in the fight of his life in 1978 when I was 10 years old. Was basically told he had an end stage, not Hodgkin's lymphoma, but if he was willing to be a test pilot for a, uh, a new drug at the time, they would try it on him in the hopes that it would work. And if it didn't, he would die. And he, believe it or not, is still here. He's 80. And I said to my father, and I called him up, And my father is just, just one of the greatest guys that's walked this earth. He used to get up at four in the morning on a Thursday, and my mom would drop him down to a train, which from Staten Island he'd take to a ferry, and then a subway to downtown Brooklyn, because he was assigned to a desk job when he got cancer. And I'm, I'm sorry to go on a tangent, but it's something I just have to express. And this guy would get up at four in the morning on Thursday, and Thursday was his treatment day. And he'd go to work. And then at noon, instead of going to lunch, he'd get back on the subway, to the ferry, to the train, and my mom would pick him up and bring him to the cancer center. And they'd juice him up with some heavy nuke shit, probably similar to what I got. But back in 78, it was cutting edge. He was a test pilot for a lot of people. And he'd get home, and within two hours, he'd be vomiting everywhere, and, and diarrhea, and... and and as a 10-year-old, it was heartbreaking. Because <sighs> I'd go in and I'd wipe the vomit off his mouth. But he couldn't drink because it would just projectile right out. So I'd just try to keep him comfortable and I'd wipe his mouth and clean him and care for him. And the next day, he'd be sick as can be. But then it was weird. After midnight on Friday, it would start to subside. And Saturday morning... He put on a robe and he'd come down 
and he'd try to sit in a chair and he'd have some orange juice and some water and start to rehydrate. And then Sunday, he'd ask my mom to make him eggs and toast and black coffee. And on Monday, he'd get back on the train and the ferry and the subway. And he'd repeat that process two weeks later. And he did that for four years. And this guy is still in remission till his day. He's 80 years old. So I called him up the night before my treatment started. Mike said to me, you're going to feel like you're burning to death the minute it starts. And I said, Dad, how'd you do it? He said, kid, keep low, which means you know, stay below the fire. He goes, keep low and you'll do it. And that was it. He said, I love you. And he hung up the phone. Mike came in, Mike Nunez, the nurse, came in. And when he started the IV, it jumped out of the line and it splashed. And he's got a hazmat suit on and I'm laying there. And all of a sudden, the IV tube starts smoking and going on fire. And I'm like, Mike, Mike, what the frig? You're not putting that in me. He goes, Nels, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He goes, I got to start it all over. He goes, you're going to be okay, but you have to take this or you're going to die. And I thought about my old man, the conversation we just had, and I thought about those three little kids who came in a little while before that, my wife. I said, all right, Mike, hit me. Let's do this. And about a second after he, he hooked me into the vein with the IV, I started feeling this burning going up my arm, and then it was up my shoulder, and then it was in my head, and then it was within 20 seconds, it was flushed through my whole body. And I've been burned before. I've been, I've been caught. I've ended up in the burn center, and it's the worst feeling in the world when you're trapped. And that's how I felt, but it was from the inside out. And it was, it was so painful, but I wouldn't take a pain med because I have a brother with, with prescription med problems and what have you, and I didn't want to go that way. I'm thinking maybe it's in the genes, I don't know. And I laid there for the first six days and I felt like I was burning to death from the inside out of my body. And I cried and I prayed and I wanted to die. And I had a vision of my mother-in-law my beloved mother-in-law who died six months before I was sick. This woman went to church every day. Beautiful Irish woman. And uh, she called me her boyfriend because we'd sit and talk because I, I understood her, I got her. It's the Irish thing, we like to talk. And she came to me in a vision and I was praying to die. And unbeknownst to me, I thought it was hallucinations. There was this raging thunderstorm going on, but it was really a raging thunderstorm. And she came to me, and I had blips of all these people I loved who had died. But then all of a sudden, she's facing me, and she's laughing, and she says, Hi, my boyfriend. And we called her Nan, and I said, Nan, I want to come home. Please take me with you. I can't do this anymore. I got I to gotta go. I'm ready. And she smiled, and she goes, No, not yet, my boyfriend. She goes, You're going to be all right. It's going to hurt, but you'll be okay. I'll see you later. And I'm, I'm grabbing for her, and she goes, I had a doctor who was atheist, and I told her the story, and she goes, oh, you're seeing things? I said, well, I don't know, but I I conveyed it to her, and I'm not gonna lie to you, the chemo messed my mind up a little bit too, it was brutal. She sends a shrink in to talk to me, and he's a rabbi, he's a Jewish, Jewish doctor, and he starts laughing, and he goes, I believe you, you're fine. What else you wanna talk about? I said, what do you mean? He says, pay me for an hour. I said, you wanna watch the Yankees? We watched the Yankee game. So for seven days, stuff burned through my body, but it worked, and I'm here. And it was hard going through it, and it was even harder on my wife and my kids, but I'm here, man, and I'm lucky.
And you're listening to Nils Jorgensen. I'm here, man, and I'm lucky. I cried and I prayed and I wanted to die. And then he had these visions, and there was that sweet, beautiful old Irish lady praying for him, loving on him. And when we come back, more of Nils Jorgensen's story here on Our American Stories. back with our American stories and firefighter Nils Jorgensen's story. Nils contracted the rarest form of leukemia from his work on 9-11 and its aftermath. Thankfully, the cancer's in remission in Nils was more than thankful. He noticed that Koch Industries leader David Koch had given hundreds of millions of dollars to cancer research and to New York City hospitals, and he partially credits David for his being alive. And so Nils, well... He wanted to show his gratitude. You know what the problem is today in the world? No one is grateful anymore. There is no gratefulness. It's just, it's just gone. And that was the main emphasis of my letter. But all I wanted to do with that letter was just say, hey, sir, thank you. This is somebody you've helped. You have no idea who I am, no idea what my life's about. But I want you to know you've blessed my life. And that was the only reason I did it. I was sitting there one day and I was, I was just feeling thankful for everything. And I saw them hammering him on TV over some political nonsense. And I didn't agree with everything the man said or did or stood for, but they were blistering this guy over something so minute. And it upset me so much. And I'm like, don't they realize the good that this man has done? And, and, I, and I just said, you know what? I want him to know that there's people out there that do appreciate it. And that was the main reason why I sat down at that very moment in, in my best grammar school penmanship because I, I'm not a computer guy and I'm technologically horrible and I probably would have sent an email to, I don't know, Australia somehow or whatever. It wouldn't have gotten there. So I said, let me write an old school letter and let me look up the address for where they're headquartered and let me send it in the hopes that he gets it. And a couple weeks later, I was like, oh, I guess maybe they didn't get it and it's okay. I, mean, I didn't want anything. I wanted nothing from him. I wanted to just say thank you. And I got a call you know, from Christine Nichols from, you know, I guess it's his public relations folks. And I was blown away and I was like, wow, you know what? This man knows that I'm grateful. And that meant everything. Mr. Koch invited me to the dedication of his new cancer wing at Sloan Kettering. And I'm sitting there, and Mr. Cole came up with his wife, and he was just such a lovely guy. And he says, Nelson, I'm so glad you made it here today. And I said, you know, Mr. Coke, I didn't expect a free launch or anything like that. And I says, but I just wanted to get a chance to shake your hand and say thank you. I said, you know this very well as a fellow survivor. If it wasn't for research and it wasn't for people devoting their life to the cause of cancer, 
we wouldn't be here. And he smiled and he says, you're so right. And he just said, thanks for the acknowledgement. And I says, Mr. Coke, thank you, sir. It's my honor. And we parted ways. And, you know, I said, oh, hopefully I'll see you when the building's completed, if we, if we get around to it. And that was my last interaction with him, but it was wonderful. It was so funny. I took my kids to the museum in New York a couple weeks ago. And I'm walking in, the David Koch wing, and I'm going, oh, my God, this guy, this guy helped everybody, you know? And, and then we walked somewhere else. I forgot where we were in the city. And I oh, we walked past the Metropolitan Opera to get to our car. And I look up, and there's his wing there. And I'm saying, wow, this guy did a lot of good for this city. And, uh, yeah, and just a gentleman. Just a, just a, he seemed to me a humble, unassuming gentleman. And I walked away going, wow, I can't believe this guy's like this huge business titan it just he just didn't come off that way you know i was expecting this swaggering almost john wayne guy with a with a chip and maybe you know a second to put out his hand and say yeah how you doing and keep on going but he stood there for a good few minutes and just chatted and it was it was really nice it was a great memory i have really great memory of him and i'm sure some of my union brethren you know he's big business and we're not and blah blah hey listen I don't know the last pro-union guy who's dedicated hundreds of millions of dollars to cancer research or other philanthropic causes that help people. So I tell him, go stick it. See, that's the problem in, in, you know, everyone gets a trophy now, is if your trophy's bigger or you have more trophies, people are upset. But it's like, wait a minute, back when I was a kid, you know, you had to work for stuff. You know, I studied for four years to become a fire lieutenant to get a $20,000 a year raise. And I say that to my son. My son's 19, and he's actually training to be a pilot. And he's, he's not sure. He's in a limbo. He doesn't know what to do. And I said, son, let me explain something to you. I said, you're in America. I said, no one can tell you no, unless, God forbid, you have a huge disability or whatnot. And even then, you could probably still do it. And I said, don't tell your mother we're talking like this because my wife has a no curse policy, so I have to be really guarded. She's tough. I'm very scared of her. She's five foot two, and she's, she's the drill sergeant around here, but the best. I said, son, no one owes you and no one owed me And I said, guess what I did last year? I said, I paid off my house after 25 years. It's paid off. Not a big house, just a ranch, nothing special, but it's paid off. I said, I bought it when I was 24 years old. I got the, the quickest down payment I could scrape together. And my father said, at the minute you can buy a house, you buy a house. And I did. And there was many, many months. Once my wife stopped working and the baby started coming, well, I went, Dad, this is a mistake. He said, kid, just keep as you're going. Don't worry about it. It'll be paid off. And I said that to my son. I said, guess what? You'll do the same thing. I says, but no one's gonna give it to you. So I'll help you along if I can. You know, I pay for his flying lessons because it's not cheap. And, and I says, but I want you to put it to good use. And he's like, dad, I will, I will. And that's the problem. Everybody feels like someone owes them something. No one owes me nothing. And I say to people, they rip me all my pension, my pension. And I say, listen, I said, I know pensions are a tricky subject. I said, but I did a lot of dangerous, crazy, dirty shit for my pension. And I said, if it's so much money, why am I still out there working with, I don't have active cancer, thank God, but you know, it's in me or whatever. I said, why would I be out there working as a stagehand if I made so much money? I said, so 
thank you. Yeah, I'm grateful for my pension, but I earned every penny of it. And, and I said, the beautiful thing is everything I owned, I worked for. And that is so hard to instill in people. And that's why, you know, Mr. Coke and his brother were so wildly successful because somebody instilled that. The lack of fathers. And I understand sometimes divorce or sometimes death, it happens. But to be brought into the world and from day one never have someone looking after you, that's heartbreaking. And unfortunately, it's omnipresent in today's society. And I don't care what race, it's everywhere. Unfortunately, January of 2012, my career was ended. I was retired off the department medically uh, because with, with certain cancers, you're not allowed to return to fire duty. And that, to me, it sounds pathetic, but that was probably the worst day of my life. One of them, because I, I lost what I did. I lost my priesthood. I lost being a fireman and helping people. And one of the weirdest things that totally set me straight after I got cancer, I was really down about losing a job. And my wife said to me, what's wrong with you? I said, I, I can't handle not being a fireman. And she goes, listen to me. She goes, you got a second chance at life. You got these kids, you have me. She goes, you're gonna have to get past it. And one night I'm at dinner and I'm cleaning a plate and my kids are still sitting there. And my daughter goes, you know what one of the best things about daddy getting cancer was? And my son goes, yeah, he's home with us for dinner all the time. And I washed off the plate and I put it in the dishwasher and I walked out and I cried, but it's okay, I'm alive and I'm watching my children grow, thank God. My uh, oldest daughter, Emily, who's 22, actually was inspired by my nursing care in Methodist Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, where I spent a month. Um, she was inspired to become a nurse and she's starting her nursing career next week. Just been hired as an emergency room nurse and I'm so very proud of her and hopefully that's the silver lining of cancer. Someone now is going out to the world to help and make a difference. And what a story, what a storyteller. And that's Nils Jorgensen's story. And what gratitude you hear in his voice, what insight, what wisdom. You've met a family. Let's face it, you met his dad. You met his wife. I'm afraid of her too. And I think we're smart we marry someone we're a little bit afraid of. And we met his kids, what smart kids, right? Something good did come of that cancer. He got to eat with his kids every day. And he's so right, no one owes you nothing. I can't say the other word. The FCC prohibits us. But in Brooklyn, well, it's not really a curse word there. It's just another word. And I know because I spent a lot of time in that part of the country. And his affection for David Koch, my goodness, a fireman and a billionaire. And they can just treat each other as fellow men, not vilifying each other, just trying to meet where humanity meets. And my goodness, what humanity in this story. And we'd love yours. You know, in the end, cancer takes so much. But there's opportunity, and there are cracks of light from it, too. And your stories are always welcome here in Our American Stories, especially all the toughest battles in our life. We learn a lot about our family, ourselves, our God. And my goodness, he learned about all three. And he's still out there serving. You know, he said he lost his priesthood. He lost being a fireman. He lost being able to help people. Well, that's not true. And he's out there still helping people. He's just got a different color a different uniform, but service is in the guy's heart. In the end, well, some people go into business and they serve, and then they take the fruits of that work and they give back. 
And all of these choices are good ones. Fireman, businessman, teacher, coach, starting a business. That's what we do here in Our American Stories. We don't pit people against one another. We celebrate all of it. Every hamlet in this country, small to big. And again, we love that you're listening and supporting our, our show. And send your stories to us at ouramericannetwork.org. Nils Jorgensen's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. This next story is a war story. America, well, it's made up of great men and women, and we are as good as the people in our country. And America won the Second World War because of men like fearless Freddie Water, whose story we're about to hear. Here's Greg Hengler. There are many incredible stories of courageous men, incredible battles, and heroes during World War II. Rear Admiral Fred Water, a submarine skipper whose exploits in World War II won him a Navy Cross, and a nickname he detested was average-sized possessed firm lips, a determined chin, with piercing blue eyes under narrowed lids and a smooth face. Warder graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, class of 1925, received his master's in marine engineering at University Cal Berkeley in 1934, was married and the father of four children. Having narrowly avoided the attack on Pearl Harbor, Rear Admiral Warder took charge of the USS Seawolf and set out for the seas of the Pacific to wreak havoc on Japanese shipping and quickly became known as the artist of submarining. Warder fought his enemy hard, but he also respected and loved him. Our American Stories would like to thank Dang Lin Productions for allowing us access to their one-of-a-kind interviews from their recent documentary, Fearless Freddy. Check out the trailer and the film at fearlessfreddymovie.com. Let's begin our deep dive into this story with submarine warfare guru, John Gorham. I attend a church here in Baltimore, Grace Bible Baptist Church, and one of our church members mentioned that she had an uncle named Freddie Water. And I said, I said, did you say Freddie Water? And she said, yes. I said, you mean like U.S. submarine captain, Freddie Water? And she says, yes, how'd you know? Nobody knows that. I said, oh, no, and to the contrary. He's the ultimate submarine warrior from World War II. He's, he's just it. I, I, most people don't know this, but the vast majority of tonnage that was sunk during World War II, enemy Japanese tonnage, was done by the submarine fleet, what's known as the silent service. These men paid the ultimate price, but something like 55% of all 
uh, surface supply shipping to the Japanese, both war shipping and merchant marine, were sunk specifically by uh, submarines. So these guys, to me, are the heroes. They were very small, efficient crew that punched way beyond their weight. Fred Warder really did punch way beyond his weight, even at family gatherings. Here's Fearless Freddy's cousin, Ann Warder Lynn. I just know that if there was going to be a brawl, <laughs> Fred was going to, you know, punch out the, the biggest man in the room, and he was going to hit him good the first time so he didn't have to go back. Fred wasn't that big, you know, and his brother, Frank, was big, and uh, he had broad shoulders, and he was, you know, it looked to me like he was at least a foot or maybe more taller than Fred, and Frank was an FBI agent, and Fred just knocked him out. <laughs> He got that first punch and that was it. And Fred was gone and Frank was down and out. And my mother said um, to my father, John, why do your relatives always have to pass out in our room? And my father said, pass out nothing. That's a KO from Fred. <laughs> it was. He knocked him out. So it seemed to me that Fred fought with men the way he fought the war. You know, he was the little guy that had to get the big guy and he had to get him with one punch knockout. Here's another one of Fred's cousins, Hugh Fordyce. Freddie was uh, the oldest of uh, my Uncle Hugh's family. Uh, they had eight children, and he was the oldest. And Freddie was valedictorian of his high school graduating class. I remember him as always had, having a big smile. Always, uh, he had a quick wit about him. Uh, his mother was Irish, you know. And he would make jokes about Catholics, and uh, even though he was a Catholic himself. No one in our family ever called Uncle Fred Fearless or Freddy. He was known as the Admiral, Uncle Fred, Fred. And when my grandmother was feeling particularly stern, Frederick. <laughs> Especially when he was teasing her about drinking or about being Catholic or something. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Here's former aide of Rear Admiral Fred Warder, Don Ulmer. Well, the instructions that, that came out um, from um, the commander of the Pacific Fleet was, uh, first off, it was the announcement that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor, and the only instructions they gave was, conduct yourself accordingly. And then, um, uh, shortly after, a message came out saying, um, engage, attack, uh, and sink uh, all enemy shipping uh, encountered. And that was it, very simple, back in those days. The United States had already um, tried to stop the Japanese from uh, colonizing and, and invading the mainland of China and Korea. A lot of misbehavior by the Japanese Empire uh, in these areas that they quote-unquote colonized. They basically invaded them and abused the, the citizens of the nations of Korea and, and China. And you've been listening to the story of fearless Freddie Water, and it's just underappreciated the role that the submarine played in World War II and beyond, and the risks these guys, mostly guys, took. It was all volunteer, always was and is. 
because it is unique duty, submarine duty, and it's dangerous, and, well, only certain types need apply. If you're claustrophobic, it is not a job for you. When we come back, more of the life of fearless Freddie Water. And we already love the guy, don't we? But wait till you hear the rest of this story here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and the remarkable story of fearless Freddie Water. Let's return to the story and to Greg Hengel. Here's Stephen Trent Smith, author of Wolfpack, the American submarine strategy that helped defeat Japan. In the late 1920s, Fred went to the submarine school in New London, Connecticut, and after that he was junior officer on a number of U.S. Navy submarines. And in 1939, he was the commanding officer at the commissioning of the USS Seawolf and remained commanding officer of the boat until 1943. Um, War clouds started gathering around 1940, and his submarine was sent to the Pacific and eventually to the Philippines, along with a number of other U.S. submarines. His submarine was at um, the Cavite Naval Yard in Manila Bay in the Philippines on December 8, 1941, when the Japanese attacked the Philippines. It, they destroyed a couple of submarines not too far away from him. Uh, he got her underway and left Manila Bay and was sent on patrol in the northern Philippines off the coast of Luzon, the east coast of Luzon near a town called Apari. He um, saw a destroyer outside of Pari, the harbor there, and he went to attack it. But then he stumbled on a seaplane tender that was in the harbor, and he decided to uh, attack that. And he got a really good, he made a really good approach. He had everything all set up. He fired four torpedoes from his forward tubes, and none of them exploded. So he turned tail because the destroyer was going to come after him, and but they set up four stern tubes to fire at the seaplane tender, and they fired those, and none of those exploded. And the only thing that exploded that day was Fred Warder, who was furious about the bad torpedoes, and that became a scandal during World War II that for the first couple of years of the war, their torpedoes did not work reliably, and he was just fit to be tied about that. Here is Rear Admiral Fred Warder. If we'd had torpedoes, we, uh, we could have made a damn fun effort. But we did not have the good torpedoes. Here again is former aide of Rear Admiral Fred Warder, Don Ulmer. So uh, Admiral Warder knew that the torpedoes were not working well. So he actually went into a place called a Davao Gulf, 
and there was a ship that was anchored there. But he was firing torpedoes at this ship, so one of the torpedoes went under the ship, okay, went up on the beach and exploded. So that was one, you see, it's not my fault, it's torpedoes fault. And then um, he fired two more and it was against the side of the, the, the ship and uh, they didn't explode so that that, that kind of confirmed that and then um, uh, another one he fired and uh, it was a uh, an erratic run called a circular run the the, uh, the, the rudder is going to lock over in one position it makes a circular run and the circular run would bring it right back uh, to about where the uh, machinery compartment is it would blow, blow the ship up we did lose a couple of submarines by the way but not uh, but, but not the Sea Wolf. Uh, well, when Water uh, anticipated this, uh, and he had his sonar people listening, he knew it was a circular run. He went down, so the torpedo passed overhead and came back up again. And he fired a couple more torpedoes, and um, he um, finished the ship off. Here again is submarine warfare guru John Gorham. Uh, what they did was um, the Japanese uh, preset. Uh, if you've seen in the movies, they look like 55-gallon drums being rolled off the back of the tail of a Corvette or a destroyer, and they were just basically loaded up with TNT. They would drop to a certain predetermined level based on, and the sensor that was used was a depth sensor based on water pressure, and then they, they would just blow up. And if you had, if you're... Uh, submarine vessel was nearby when one of those blew up the shock was such that it could break open the hull or weaken it or, or wrinkle the skin and do all kinds of damage the vast majority of anyone's submarines that were lost during the war were lost to depth charges he talked to me one time about um, depth charge evasion uh, and um, the way he, he put it to me is that, well, you got to understand that what the, this Japanese destroyer, the enemy destroyer is doing, is he's uh, making a noise and, and, and he's listening for the echo. Well, uh, the more aspect that you show uh, that ship, uh, the, the stronger the echo. So basically what he would always do uh, is to turn and point directly toward the ship. And that gave him the most narrow aspect. And even though it meant that he was going right toward this guy that was trying to get him, uh, the uh, echoes were, were just not coming back strong. Uh, they would come back weak, which would indicate the, that the, uh, the submarine was much further away. So and the guy would go uh, overhead and he'd go racing out there and bang, 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 the charges would go off. And, um, and, the, and, and that's, that was the time uh, that he would make his, uh, his course change or maneuver in order to put distance between him and, the, and that destroyer. But of course, um, uh, if ever you fired a torpedo, the guy knew generally where you were, and then he would come over there and start you know, banging on you with that sonar and uh, drop depth charges, and it was pretty bad. The strategy the United States Navy had with our submarine service was to go after the merchant marine because they were easy targets. They were soft targets. We could sink them. They couldn't fight back. It allowed our uh, American submarine fleet to last a little longer. It's, it's a little more dangerous when you go after a Japanese warship because they can fight back. And the most deadly warships were corvettes and destroyers because the destroyers are very shallow draft vessels. If you attempt to fire at a torpedo at a at it, uh, well, at least at a Corvette. A Corvette's even smaller than a destroyer. Uh, Corvettes are so shallow that torpedoes go underneath. And you have to be a very good shot to take out a destroyer with a torpedo. The vast m majority of American submarine commanders wouldn't tangle with the destroyer, but that's not the case with Freddie Warder. Submarine commanders were a breed apart. A lot of them had a 
strong streak of independence. They didn't like being pushed around by admirals and captains, you know, and the submarine service gave them that kind of freedom because when a submarine left port, they had virtually no contact with the admirals and the captains. It was all up to the submarine commander. They didn't have anybody breathing down their necks. Everybody was required to go on seven patrols. And generally the custom was to for a, a captain not to press his luck. Just like in Vietnam, when a guy was down to his last month, he didn't go out on any scary patrols. You don't want to risk a guy's life. If he's made it through a whole year in Nam, you don't want to push your luck at the last minute. But Warder is Warder, and he's determined to make this very last of his patrols count. He was on his way back from the Palau Islands, and he discovered another anchorage or an area where there was a tremendous amount of activity. He sailed in, he torpedoed, and he was able to sink a 3,000-ton ship. Then he sank a transport. Uh, this is very valuable because not only is it tonnage, but it's Japanese fighting troops, men that will never make it to shore and, and, and threaten American lives. A 7,000-ton transport. That was a tremendous prize that he got. Then again, he was able to torpedo, on it, again, on his, on his way coming home, he was able to torpedo another ship to the tune of 3,000 tons. So that means he sank 13,000 tons in one patrol, that's more than the majority of uh, sub-captains ever sank in their entire career of seven patrols in the South Pacific. How Freddie Water got that name Fearless Freddie? He was the last boat out on patrol leaving the Java Sea area, very low on fuel, very low on food, provisions. Um, <laughs> the men were smoking uh, coffee grounds rolled in toilet paper because they'd been out of cigarettes for a while. Anytime you live on a submarine, it's under high stress. This was a very, very difficult time because they're low on fuel. They're low on torpedoes, but Freddie Warder wasn't about to go back to his base with unspent torpedoes. Ridiculous. He'd never do that. He found out that the Japanese had invaded the Christmas Islands about 200 miles south of Java, and he uh, took his boat down in that way. He decided he'd just patrol the area, cruise around, see what's going on. As he approached Flying Fish Cove, uh, that's the one where the Japanese uh, had their anchorage, uh, it was an absolute submariner's dream. Four cruisers lined up in a row, lined up in a row. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this remarkable story. 13,000 tons in one patrol. The artist of submarining, the ultimate submarine warrior. And we're talking about fearless Freddie Water. His story continues here on Our American Stories. And if you have a war story of your own, a family war story, or one that we should be covering and didn't know about, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And I'm talking about from the Revolutionary War straight up to the remarkable and greatest generation, because I call this round of warriors the greatest generation, right up to the present. Again, this is Our American Stories, always telling the stories of our fighting men and women. More after these messages.
And we continue here with Our American Stories, and let's return to Greg Hengler and his story about Rear Admiral Fearless Freddie Water. Here again is submarine warfare guru John Gorham. He found out that the Japanese had invaded the Christmas Islands about 200 miles south of Java, and he uh, took his boat down in that way. He decided he'd just patrol the area, cruise around, see what's going on. As he approached Flying Fish Cove, uh, it was an absolute submariner's dream. Four cruisers lined up in a row, lined up in a row. He got in close, and uh, destroyers recognized him right away. He heard the pinging, but he fired off four torpedoes at a cruiser that was about a thousand yards away, and that's about as close as a submariner will ever want to get to his target. So he fired these four torpedoes. As soon as he was convinced that he had sunk that ship, he, he dove low, and his logbook reports that uh, the Japanese were very effective in placing their depth charges. So he stayed low and he, he waited uh, uh, overnight. Uh, the next day, and he slipped out of the cove, the next day he slipped back in and the Japanese of course were alerted to him, they were on patrol, but he was able to maneuver in again and nail a second um, cruiser. And again he was uh, depth charged, um, fled the area waited until later on that afternoon he came back in and he struck a cruiser a third time. Captain Water comes in the very next day again because he wants to finish off this juicy collection. He's down to just two torpedoes left. They're on attack mode now because they're just absolutely patrolling the area. The water's boiling with ships going back and forth looking for him. He slips in because he's determined to use up his last torpedoes. There's one more cruiser left. It's flying the pennant of the admiral of the squadron. He says, I'm going to take this guy out. So he fires his last two torpedoes at the cruiser and he hits them. But in the meantime, uh, the destroyers got perilously close to him. He dove down deep and he endured nine hours of depth charge from multiple patrol boats, corvettes, destroyers. Unbelievable. I, that may be the record for the United States Navy for this submarine fleet. Enduring nine hours of well-placed depth charging. And he says in his logbook, he says, my men were really at the end of their rope and he realized he had to go and there's no point in staying around. He had no more torpedoes. He's already taken out all four of the capital ships that were anchored at Flying Fish Cove. And he returned home in victory. And on the way, the men said, we're going to call you Fearless Freddy from now on after what we saw you do. Here again is former aide of Rear Admiral Fred Warder, Don Ulmer. He later came back uh, as what they call a, a division commander or a wolf pack commander. And that was after he was relieved by uh, Lieutenant Commander Royce Gross. He went into Christmas Island uh, because uh, they knew the Japanese were going to come there uh, in order to uh, you know, take advantage of the potassium. At the time, there were nothing but Aboriginal uh, people uh, that were there. And uh, to give you some feel for Aboriginal water, uh, uh, he got there before the Japanese did, and uh, there were facilities uh, there, uh, docking, that sort of thing. And uh, someone suggested that, well, maybe it's a good idea if we go in there and blow all that up. Uh, well, now, you got to understand, these, this is a war going on. 
uh, and these are just Aboriginal people. You would think that you know who who really cares about them? Uh, Warner did, and he said no. He says we're not going to go in there and blow anything up. He says because uh, these people need this to make a living there, and we don't want to hurt them. I guess later on I, I learned from um, uh, the person who succeeded him in command of the the Sea Wolf, uh, Royce Gross that he sunk a, a Japanese merchant ship uh, not far from uh, that, that place. Uh, it went down, there were two survivors in the water, and the water wanted to bring them on board, and one of them blew himself up with a hand grenade, and the other was, uh, he just refused to come because uh, the Japanese culture at the time, you do not surrender, you you died for the emperor. And the waters f figured he needed something, uh, so um, he actually uh, he tossed him a life jacket and a, and a fifth of bourbon. Uh, the uh, Japanese acknowledged with a nod, and uh, but uh, from what Warder could tell that he was, uh, you know, uh, carried out to sea and ultimately was lost. Here again is Stephen Trent Smith, author of Wolfpack, the American submarine strategy that helped defeat Japan. When he was uh, patrolling down in the Java Sea area, he sunk a Japanese ship and he surfaced and discovered a lot of Japanese just floating in the water without life jackets. So he had the crew, his crew, throw as many life jackets as they could to help the surviving sailors. He saw them as an enemy. I mean, the Japanese is truly an enemy because of what they had done, particularly at Pearl Harbor. But he believed that your enemy is also your brother. To be a successful captain, you have to have a crew that will obey you, and you have to have a crew that respects you enough to risk their lives, because he isn't called Fearless Freddy for nothing. He would take risks that almost no other submarine captain did. Well, some of them took risks and they just didn't live to tell about it, which is understandable. That's why they call it a risk. Um, but Freddie absolutely earned that title of being called fearless. He absolutely was uh, fearless. And his men would go to the gates of hell and back for him. He had their utmost respect. Here again is Fearless Freddie's cousin, Ann Warder Lynn. He really did believe in a hard war and an easy peace. Um, he wanted the war to be fought hard and fast and be over with so that humanity could get back to being humanity because he, I never really heard him say an ugly thing about anyone. I never heard anyone say he said an ugly thing about another person. If you were with him, you just felt like you were the only person on earth. He really made people feel his warmth. I, do, I mean, you just really wanted him to be proud of you. Uh, you were proud to be with him and you wanted him to be proud of you. And uh, he's one of my fondest childhood memories, actually. He went on to earn uh, two Navy crosses. Of course, he got a uh, Legion of Merit. He got two of those, a Navy Commendation Medal, Navy Achievement Medal, and uh, then the usual ones, the Victory Medal, uh, Philippine Service Medal, and Asiatic uh, Pacific Medal. From what I've read in his obituary and been told by my father, Uncle Fred really didn't like the name Fearless Freddy because he was just as afraid as anybody else on the submarine and his crew. And his crew were his heroes, whom he fondly referred to as his beloved sons of you-know-what. And uh, he felt and said that the real heroes in war are those that give their lives. Here again is Rear Admiral Fred Warder. How'd you get the name Fearless? <laughs> uh, well, I don't like it. Uh, one, I'm scared to death. 
Really? I mean, when I shoot torpedoes, I'm scared. Fred Warder became Assistant Chief of Naval Operations for Undersea Warfare in 1955. He commanded the Submarine Force Atlantic Fleet in 1957 and retired in 1962 after two years as Commandant of the 8th Naval District in New Orleans. He retired in 1962 and died at his home on February 1st, 2000. He was 95 years old. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler, and special thanks to Dang Lin Productions for allowing us access to their one-of-a-kind interviews from their recent documentary, Fearless Freddy. Check out the trailer and the film at fearlessfreddymovie.com. That's fearlessfreddymovie.com. And what a story we heard indeed. This Annapolis grad class of 1925, married father of four, and a leader, and in the end, a soldier underground, in a tin can, far underground, and doing things that, wow, are unimaginable, really difficult things. And he loved the idea of leading his men, but did not love being called Fearless Freddy. Because anyone who's fearless, well, they're scary. He rose above his fear and led anyway. And that's why he was the man he was, the artist of submarining, the ultimate submarine warrior, Freddie Water, fearless Freddie Water, his story here on Our American Story. continue our conversation with author Tim Harford, who writes about economics in a way, well, it's just storytelling. Here in Our American Stories, that's what we care about. And his book, 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy, is chock full of great stories. And we're going to drill down on just a few. Tim, you've said that 50 inventions in your book were not chosen based on some perfect measure of importance, but instead, these are 50 inventions that most of us just don't give much thought to, but my goodness, they changed everything. One such invention is the limited liability company. Without the LLC, modern life would be very different. Talk about that. Yes, and some thinkers believe that they're, they're more important than, say, electricity or the railways or these, these amazing um, physical technologies. And, and the reason being, uh, the limited liability company was very important in allowing companies to raise money. Um, so the, what is essentially true about a limited liability company is that um, if, um, if you and I, say, decide we're, we're going to um, invest in a company and we, you know, we, we decide we're going to put $10,000 into a company and try and get it all started, we may lose our $10,000. But we can't then be pursued for any more money. Like I've put my $10,000 in, you can't get $20,000 out of me or $50,000 or a million dollars if the company does something wrong. Yeah, my, my liability is limited to the amount of money I originally put in. And so 
having this protection for investors made it more attractive for investors to, to put money into companies. It made it easier for companies to raise money because the investors knew there was, there was a limit to their downside. And that in turn was important because it meant that suddenly you could raise money from people who didn't know you. Previously, you would only be able to raise money from very close friends, from family, because their liability would be, be unlimited. If you did something stupid with their money, there was no end to the amount of trouble that they could have. So, so limited liability enables companies to go out and raise money from a large number of strangers to saying, we've got a great business plan. And if you, if you give us some money, we will, we will invest it wisely and you know, you'll make profits. You think about companies such as um, General Electric trying to set up an entire electricity grid or you think about the railway companies. I mean, how is a railway company supposed to make money? You've got to build an entire railway and you've got to put the trains on it before you can collect a single dime from any railway passenger. Clearly, you've got to raise a huge amount of money. So the limited liability structure allowed that to be possible. And so you, you could have these huge infrastructure projects, water, uh, railways, electricity. There have been a lot of downsides, of course. A lot of people have been ripped off by limited liability companies. Companies have taken too much risk. Um, people get enthusiastic. They pour too much money in, bubbles. Um, there's a long, long history of people being ripped off. But overall, I think you would say this was a very important step in the creation of, of major uh, multinational companies. They really couldn't exist without limited liability. Indeed. I mean, a capital is the oxygen of innovation. I mean, how do you innovate without capital? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Otherwise, you've just otherwise got very, very small companies or, um, or you have to already be a billionaire to set up something major. That's right. And let's talk about concrete. This was fascinating to me. Uh, why does concrete matter and how did it help develop modern life? Well, it matters because it is ubiquitous. It's probably the substance that we humans use more of than anything else with the exception of water. There's a lot of concrete in the world. Uh, it's a very, very flexible, very versatile building material. Um, from the point of view of an engineer or, or an architect, uh, actually the trouble with concrete is once it's built, there's nothing you can do with it. You can't change it. It's not like bricks. Bricks, you can, you can take down a, a brick wall or a brick house and reuse the bricks. But for a structural engineer, for an architect, it's a very, very... Um, robust, flexible, and inexpensive material. And so we pour a lot of it. Concrete bridges, concrete skyscrapers, it's everywhere. Um, there is an amazing fact that I checked three times and then some colleagues of mine at the BBC said they didn't believe. And so they, they fact-checked me and they came back and said, no, you were right all along, Tim. And that fact is that in three years recently, I think it's 2008, 2009, 2010, I forget exactly, but three recent years, China poured more concrete than the United States did in the entire 20th century. It gives you a sense of the, the building boom going on in, in China and how incredibly important this material is. So, I mean, that's why it matters. It's because it's everywhere. Um, where did it come from? Well, we've had Concrete for a very long time, probably 10,000 years, it's been discuss, uh, discovered in um, settlements in Turkey, 8, 10, maybe 12,000 years ago. The Romans used a lot of it. 
the um, the Parthenon, if you ever have the chance to go to Rome, there's this uh, ancient church. It's nearly 2,000 years old called the Parthenon. It's made of concrete. And if you go in and you look up, it's, it is recognizably concrete. It reminds me a little bit of the Washington, D.C. metro system. It's quite striking. Um, and the, the big leap forward uh, was in the 1800s, uh, a French gardener called Joseph Meunier was trying to make concrete flower pots. And they didn't really work until he realized he could reinforce them with a steel mesh. And there's this amazing thing about the, the steel. The steel and the concrete, as it happens, expand and contract when they get hotter and colder at almost exactly the same rate. And so this is very unusual for two materials. But it means you can put steel reinforcement inside concrete and it won't instantly crack when, when the concrete hit, heats up. It makes the concrete vastly stronger under certain kinds of stress and it means you can make concrete skyscrapers, concrete bridges, uh, which, which would have been impossible. So um, it's a remarkable material. We are maybe storing up trouble for ourselves because um, some of those reinforcements are starting to get exposed to the elements. They're starting to rust. That makes the concrete way, way um, weaker. And so you see these dreadful bridge collapses that happen from time to time. That's catching up with us. And uh, it's probably going to catch up with China too. Let's talk about index funds. I, I was uh, stunned to see it here, but then I read the chapter, and my goodness, it belongs here, doesn't it? I think so. Paul Samuelson, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics uh, a few decades ago, Paul Samuelson said that the index fund ranks alongside wine, cheese, and the wheel as a, an invention of human history. I mean, that may be um, slightly exaggerating things, but it has saved, the index fund has saved a lot of people a lot of money. And the basic idea of an index fund is you want to invest in the stock market rather than pay some expert to pick stocks for you, um, for which they will charge you handsomely. Why not just invest in the, the market as a whole? Just say, well, if the market as a whole goes up, I make money. If the market as a whole goes down, I make the money. But I'm not going to worry too much about picking stocks. And perhaps surprisingly, that turns out to be really just as good as paying an expert and cheaper. There's lots and lots of evidence that suggests that um, it's very hard for expert stock pickers to do much better than, than just whatever the market is doing. So this was observed by Paul Samuelson, this Nobel Prize winning economist. And he wrote an, an essay saying um, somebody should invent a kind of fund that just invests in the index. What then happened, this is probably the first time in human history this has ever happened, is somebody paid attention to something that an academic economist said <laughs> and said, you know what, this is a good idea. His name was John Bogle. And um, Bogle had just set up his own um, investment company. And um, he was looking for low-cost investment strategies. And he came across Samuelson's challenge. And he said, well, I'm, I'm going to develop an index fund. And at first, he was a laughing stock. Other Wall Street funds criticized him, scorned him, accused him of being a communist, accused him of being unpatriotic, because, you know, Americans, Americans aren't willing to settle for the average. They, they want to do better. And initially, nobody invested, nobody showed up. But slowly, 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 uh, his fund got more and more investors. And it's called Vanguard, or the company is called Vanguard. It is one of the largest fund managers on the planet. 
Uh, and this strategy now of just passively investing in the market is hugely popular. And it's all down to, to Bogle and Samuelson. And I, I saw an estimate that something like a trillion dollars, if I remember rightly, something like a trillion dollars of investors' money has been saved that would otherwise have been paid in fees to Wall Street over the last 40 years. And that's winners and losers for sure. They are the winners being the public and the losers being the experts. And I might add, it allows ordinary people to go into the markets and just play the economy over a long period of time without the worry of picking winners and losers themselves. Absolutely. And it's how, how I do it. I mean, I write for the Financial Times. I'm, a, I'm an economist. I have quite a keen interest in markets. But I know enough to know I don't think I can beat the market. So I, I use, as it happens, I'm not paid to endorse them. As it happens, I use Vanguard index funds. They seem as good as any. And um, yeah, it's the same performance, but for lower fees. So uh, if a Financial Times columnist and... Um, professional professional economist is saying uh, i can't do better than a passive index fund i think the same is true of most of the people listening to this program there may be a few who can do better but uh, a lot of people would do better just putting their money in the market and uh, crossing their fingers and you've been listening to tim harford author of 50 inventions that shape the modern economy and to hear more of tim's book and the other stories in this remarkable book, go to ouramericannetwork.org. The stories are just so good. All of these stories about modern invention, modern life, modern business, here on Our American Stories.